Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 16th, 2020, and we have worked our way up to episode 2754 of the Survival Podcast, over 2750 times. Now we've gotten together and done this show. Started back in 2008. For those that are new to this and just found this today, and wonder is this worth? Is this thing with this survivalist guy worth hanging out for? I don't know. That's my honest answer to you. If you're new to the show, I don't know if this will work out for you. I do know that about a quarter million people a day listen to it. We've been doing it for 12 years now, and uh, that must mean we're doing something right. And if you are new, want to remind or just let you know that there's kind of a schedule, rhythm, of flow to this show. Uh, different shows on different days, five days a week. And Friday, 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 we don't have monster trucks. We have the monster show of the week. That's the expert counsel show. That's where we have these, these, these really smart people who know things I don't. And we have questions come in for them. And if you want to ask them a question, what you want to do is you want to go to the Meet the Expert Council uh, page. And you can look underneath the About tab at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can see all the experts and the things that they talk about. Send me a question. Send it with TSPC expert in the subject line. That'll make sure if it ends up in one of them nasty spam boxes, I can dig it out and uh, tell me who the question's for. And you are more than welcome to send a question in for more than one member. And uh, give me the question. Ask the question in a single uh, sentence. Trust me. You can give me all the details you want, but condense the question into a single sentence first. Then give me details. Don't give me details and then give me question. It will help me. Go through that email really quickly and understand the question. And then if I think anything has to be clarified, clarify it for the expert council members, send it on to them. And then I will know, you will know, and they will know exactly what you're asking. I've been doing this a long time, like I said, 12 years. And trust me, this formula works. And if I look at a question for myself or for an expert council member, and I've read three sentences and I still don't know what the question is, I delete it. I don't do that to be mean or be a jackass or anything like that. I do that because I get about... 250 to 300 legitimate emails from the audience a day. Legitimate ones. right? That's not spam ones. That's not stupid ones. That's not, Jack, you suck. You're an idiot and you're a moron and you're trying to be Rush Limbaugh or some other stupid shit like that. Because I still get, I, I don't understand that one, but I still get that one. I'm talking about legitimate, hey, I need help. Hey, I'm a customer. I need this problem with my problem, you know, with my, with my account or I have, like, stuff like that. So I can't. If you think about that, if I spent one minute on every legitimate email, I would eat up almost my entire day just doing email. So I have to have developed this really quick way to go through them. And when I get a question and it's clear, I can beat through that email in 10 seconds. And I can, I can do something effective with it. So send them in. TSPC expert. TSPC like it's a word all together. And then space expert in the subject line. Follow that formula. We'll try to get you on the air. Here's what we got for you today. Nutritional considerations for hypothyroidism thyroidism from old at Doc Bones. Uh, choosing the right sharpening angle for the right knife. You know who that's going to be. Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives. What about that sugar on that bacon when you're doing keto carnivore? Dr. Ken Berry, who else would answer that? A handyman grab bag of Q&A from Tim of the Tool Man Cook. Stage two in winterizing your bees from the bee whisperer himself, Michael Jordan, not the one that plays basketball, the one that plays with bees in the wilds of Wyoming. Sizing and choosing a home backup generator from Derek Bonpietro 
who knows a little bit about generators. And I'm going to take another look at social media and why the time has come to leave most major platforms. And I know you'll be like, I'm tired of this, Jack. I don't use social media. If you don't use social media, this won't matter that much to you. But my anchor segment today will be brief, for me anyway. And it's going to tie into our quote of the day. So I'm going to be brief with our quote of the day today. But our quote of the day today is by Johann von Goethe. G-I-R-T-A would be how you would pronounce it. It looks like Goethe. Right, but it's a German word, Goethe. Trust me, that's how you say his name. It's a full name that he's known of in history, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He made one of the most famous quotes of all time, and I think a lot of people know the quote and don't know anything about von Goethe, which we won't go into today. But if you said who said this, they would they would attribute it to one of the nation's founding fathers, you know, um, like like a like a Jefferson or something like that. But no, it was a German poet, von Goethe, who said, None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. And I'm going to talk about that at length in my segment today. So I'll just start out with that. And let's go to something totally different. Nutritional considerations for hypothyroidism. Old Doc Bones. Bones, what do we do about this? Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. Today's question for the expert counsel is from David, who writes, Is it possible that there are foods that can help with hypothyroidism? My daughter is 14 and was just diagnosed with hypothyroidism. I scheduled an appointment with an endocrinologist, so we don't yet have a cause, but I'm curious to know if there are any nutritional strategies I can take that may be able to help her with this. Thanks for everything you do. David, your daughter is young, but you do see it in pediatric cases. Females get it more than males. Foods in general can definitely impact your thyroid health, but first let me talk a little bit about the thyroid in general. The thyroid is a gland located in the front lower part of your neck that produces hormones that affect, gosh, nearly every part of your body, from your heart and brain to your muscles and skin. The thyroid also controls a lot of your metabolism. It affects your body temperature, your heartbeat, and how you burn calories. Not enough hormone causes some major issues. Hypothyroidism causes a lot of symptoms, especially if ignored. The most commonly seen in adults are fatigue, intolerance to cold, constipation, poor appetite, weight gain, dry skin, hair loss, hoarseness, menstrual irregularity, depression, and if ignored, additional symptoms might appear such as a thickened skin, vocal changes, swelling of the hands, feet, or face, and in kids you may see delay in puberty, delay in growth, you can see shorter stature, slow mental development, and slower development of permanent teeth. The most common cause of hypothyroidism in teens is called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's an autoimmune disorder where your body produces antibodies that attack and destroy the thyroid gland. Thyroiditis may also be caused by a viral infection or a deficiency in iodine and possibly selenium and zinc. I have to say that a good diet will usually have enough of these elements, so discuss this with your family doctor. Doctors evaluate this condition with a series of tests, including thyroid-stimulating hormone, free T3, free T4, thyroid scans and sonograms, and tests for antibodies that your child may be producing against her own body. Be sure to ask for a complete panel, not just TSH. 
But David, your question was about nutritional strategies. There are foods that either block the production of thyroid hormone inside your thyroid gland or block the release of thyroid hormone from your thyroid gland into your bloodstream. Foods to avoid include flaxseed, canola, corn, or other polyunsaturated fat oils, grapefruit, soy, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, spinach, and cabbage. Some of this is related to the presence of certain substances known as isoflavones and also phytoestrogens. This may not be enough to make a difference, however, depending on your daughter's current diet. Standard commercial thyroid medications such as Synthroid, a synthetic thyroid, exist, but there are other remedies that may improve the condition. A number of thyroid extracts are available, which consist of desiccated and powdered pig or cow thyroid gland. The amount of thyroid hormone in these extracts may be variable, therefore the medical establishment recommends against their use. That doesn't mean they can't work. A number of natural supplements are commercially available. Armor Thyroid is the most popular of these, but it's prescription only. Others include Thyrovans, which is a desiccated bovine product, and Nature Thyroid, a desiccated porcine product. It's important that people with hypothyroidism ask their physician to monitor thyroid levels while on these supplements. If your thyroid levels sink like a stone, well, you should research other options. If your thyroid levels are normal on the alternative, continue monitoring long-term to determine whether the product might be worthwhile to stockpile for disaster scenarios. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up, the man himself when it comes to sharpening knives. The man that actually can make a knife split a hair in two, and I've seen him do it. I'm not kidding. The man that builds knives that you can smack with a hammer and cut a penny right in, in half. There's there's uh, more to sharpening a knife than getting a really great edge on it as far as it being sharp. There's also the concept of the angle and different angles for different knives for different purposes. With that in mind, how do we choose the right angle for the right knife? Patrick Roman. Hey guys, this is Patrick Roman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Michael. His question is, what sharpening angles would you recommend for different kinds of knives, such as fillet, pairing, general utility, etc.? There seems to be quite a range of recommendations for each type. What have you found to work best? Thanks for the question, Michael. Um, I'm going to kind of go through your list here and tell you what I would recommend. So, first of all, something like a fillet knife. Um, a fillet knife is going to be a fairly low angle, probably around 16 degrees, 15, 16 degrees. Um, you don't want it super low because you are going to be um, hitting bones and stuff like that. But you still want it on the sharper end of the spectrum. So I'd probably say somewhere around 15 to 16 degrees. For a pairing knife... You know, you're talking about you're going to use a lot for peeling things and stuff like that. You want a fairly uh, a sharp angle for that as well. Um, that's probably going to be somewhere in the same ballpark, maybe maybe uh, a little bit higher, 18 degrees or so. 
it depends on the paring knife. A lot of the paring knives you have are, are fairly thin, and so it's pretty easy to put a pretty low angle on them. However, a lot of them are not the best steel, and so you might want to bring the angle up just a little bit to uh, account for the poor quality steel. And then general utility, uh, I'm, I'm somewhere around 18, 19 degrees. Uh, if it's a cheaper knife with poor quality steel, it's going to be somewhere around the 19 to 21 degree range. And then stuff like hatchets, cleavers, um, could be as high as 25 degrees. And then 25 degrees is where I put a lot of the, the customers who trash edges right away. Um, give them a nice obtuse angle that they're going to have to work a little bit harder to destroy the edge on. So I hope that uh, helps you out. Those are just some of the angles that I've found to, to work good for uh, what I do. And also, um, as you sharpen and sharpen your own stuff, it's pretty easy to decide if, if your angle's too low. If, if it's just not holding the edge the way you want it to, bring that angle up a little bit and just uh, come up a little bit by a little bit and uh, see what you think. And when it gets to a place where you're comfortable with how sharp it is and how long it holds that edge, that's, uh, that's what I'm looking for. So thanks a lot for the question, Michael. Hope you guys have a great weekend and uh, stay sharp. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. Next up, you've been walking down the keto path for a while. Maybe you've hit a plateau or you just want to take it up a notch and you're thinking about going carnivore. That means you only eat it if it had a face, or at least if it came from something with a face. Butter would be an example if it's not got a face, but it came from something with a face. And you're thinking, man, I'm going to eat me some bacon. Mmm, bacon. You look at the back of the label of the bacon and it says salt, pork, Sugar. Sugar. Not supposed to be there on the keto diet. How much do we worry about that on a carnivore-based keto diet? Dr. Ken Berry, who knows a little bit about keto, he'll tell you something about that right now. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question for a listener today. This question comes from Blake. Blake says, should we be concerned about the sugar used in the curing process in bacon while on the carnivore or keto diets? Great question. I, I love that you're thinking about sugar from every source. That's good that, that you're doing that mental exercise. I don't think that the sugar used in the curing process for bacon or any other meat matters that much, as long as when you pick up the package of bacon to buy it, you flip it over and you look at the nutrition facts. If the bacon has more than one total gram of carbohydrate per serving, then it's got too much sugar. You don't put that bacon back. You can look and you can find bacons with zero grams or one gram. Definitely you want to always buy less than two total grams of carbohydrate for any bacon you're buying. The Usually the sugar amount used in the curing process is going to give you one gram of carbs per serving of the bacon, which is not a big deal for most people. Some bacon after the curing process is over, 
they add more sugar. So they, they basically candy or caramelize the bacon. So they add sugar to the outside. Now that bacon, while being delicious, is going to have way too many carbohydrates for you. It's going to raise your blood sugar and your insulin and your levels of inflammation. So just look at the nutrition facts of any meat. And this can be bologna, potted meat, spam, any of that. You want it to have less than two grams of carbohydrates total per serving of the meat. And then you know that's a, that's a keto friendly or a carnivore friendly meat that's also going to save you some money. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So my answer would be very similar. I would simply say that when I, when I eat bacon, if it has some sugar contributed to it through the curing process, I count the carbs against my carb allowance for every meal and for every day. I don't care if it's two or one or three. How many do I get that day and how do I want to spend them? I'll also add to it this. I think that when we look at something like bacon, which is so reductive in the way that it cooks, the numbers on bacon, when it says, like, this is how much a piece of bacon contributes to your diet, are over the number that really ends up in your body. There's no way you have bacon that was cured with sugar. And it's like Ken said, they, they sugar-coated it or something, but you've cured bacon. Okay, now you fry bacon. Now, the bacon ends up being about a third of its volume by the time you're done cooking it, and all that beautiful bacon grease that we can use to cook other things with has come out of it. You can't tell me. You can't tell. You can tell me. I just won't believe you. I will call you a, a dog face, a, a lion dog face pony soldier. <laughs> anyway, I, I I will not believe you if you tell me that none of the sugar ends up coming out of that bacon, cooked into that bacon grease, and is is is, is dead, therefore not consumed. Unless we're going to then take the bacon grease and pour it on something and, and consume that, then I think maybe you would contribute, you know, would take the full contribution. So I don't really worry about it, and I think it depends on how much bacon you're eating. And uh, so per serving, well, what's a serving? Is it is it a thin slice bacon where a serving is considered two slices? Is it a thick bacon where it's considered one? And how much of it are you consuming? That's the other part you need to look at in my opinion, with this pretty simple question here. And if we're eating, you know, for breakfast we're eating, you know, three eggs and two slices of bacon, who gives a shit? I don't care if it's freaking four grams of carbohydrate. There's none in the eggs, right? So it's it's irrelevant. If we are going to sit down and eat a pack of bacon, we got to start paying attention. You see what I mean? That's, that's, that's where it comes down to me. Is that I don't give a shit what's in the individual serving, how many servings do you have times the individual serving number, and how much does that contribute to your diet. Uh, next up, we got us a grab bag of questions for Tim the Toolman Cook, and I want to congratulate everybody that got a question into the grab bag. Because when you ask a question so succinctly that an expert council member says, I'm going to take this question and this question and this question and put them all together in one answer, you did a good job consolidating your question down to the specific thing that you were asking. So send me questions like this, guys. There are certain people good at this. Uh, Tim's good at it. John Pugliano is the master. And we don't have any questions from him today. But he is the master at putting two or three questions into one answer. So follow the format that you hear here. And you will likely hear here, yeah, hear here, and you are likely to get on the show in the future. 
Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Coming to you from AllSeasonsMain.com where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman, where we share tips and tricks, successes and failures on our road to financial freedom. We got a three for this week and we are going to try to knock out three questions in my segment. So the first question comes from a fellow TSPR Clark over on the Canadian Telegram channel, and he asks, Hey Tim, I'm wondering how you decide on how far from home base you'll go out for small one to two day jobs. I know your area isn't a huge metropolis and figure you probably serve some of the small communities surrounding your area. Also, when it comes to pricing jobs and billing, do you price by the job or by the hour? I tend to try to keep my work within an hour's drive of my home base. It's going to differ depending on your area. Any further than that, and you're spending a ton of time on the road, and most of my jobs are less than a day's work, so it would be really difficult to get customers to pay for the travel, when the job is just window cleaning or hedge trimming, that sort of thing. When I'm going out of town, though, I do try to advertise in the local Facebook groups to let the community know that I'll be in their area, either cleaning gutters, washing windows, trimming hedges, so I can make it worth my time to travel to that area. Ideally, if you live in a large enough uh, center, you'll be able to do all of your work in one town. Because keep in mind, each town you work in may require a separate business license or permit to do business. As well, if you're crossing state or provincial lines, make sure your insurance and workers' compensation will cover you. And once you get busy enough and develop a good customer base, you'll have more than enough work to pay the bills. So usually you won't have to travel that far. However, never say never, because if the job pays well enough, it's definitely worth traveling for. As far as charging by the hour or by the job, once you have a bit of experience behind you, charging by the job is much more lucrative. Once you have a good idea of how long a job's going to take, then you know what you can charge. If you charge by the hour, as you get more efficient at the same jobs, you'll actually be taking a pay cut, because you can get the same job done in a shorter period of time. Also, if you charge by the job, you don't have the stress of the customer wanting you to finish up quickly because you're on their dime. When I charge $5 a window to clean windows, no one ever complains. But if I told them it's $100 an hour to clean windows, which is usually what the $5 a window works out to for me, I wouldn't get past the front door with that customer. Charging by the job almost always pays better than charging by the hour. So, second question comes from another TSPer. This one was via email. Mike says, I had a lawn service before with an SUV, and if needed, a trailer. I was close to considering full-time before my spinal surgery. Mind you, this was five years ago, and I no longer have an SUV to haul equipment. I'm currently unemployed. I did find a customer who needed mowing with her own equipment, and the crank started turning. Mowing at a discount. I'm going to offer her on-site service with her mower to extend my ability and service. But am I missing anything? Please use this uh, for the TSP community, hopefully to spark someone else. So thanks, Mike, for sharing your inspiration. First, I'd, love to, I'd like to say that I really love the idea of going to a customer's house and mowing using their equipment. If this is a service that's needed, I say go for it. But I would be person personally cautious on using a customer's equipment because it may open you up to a different form of liability. If something breaks, you might have to pay for it. And you may not be able to do as good a job simply because you're not used to their equipment. And also, remember what you're worth. I heard you said the word discount. Don't discount yourself too much because your price is what you need to charge. And make what you're worth. But you certainly can do this. Start small. If your body doesn't agree with you, work up to it. But I would say also put out a post on the local community groups looking for others who may need their lawns mowed as well. 
Now, you didn't mention what kind of vehicle you have now, but I would say don't let that limit you. I have a push Toro mower that the handle folds in half. It would be small enough to fit in the smallest trunks of the smallest cars, as well as the uh, one of my favorite DeWalt battery weed whippers. It folds in half as well. And if you don't want to have to deal with a gasoline mower, you could always get an inexpensive electric mower to get started and put that right in the back seat of your car. Or a small cargo carrier for the back bumper or the roof to haul lightweight lawn care gear around. So don't let your limitations get in your way. And I can't wait to hear how this venture goes, man. Keep it up. I love hearing this kind of stuff. So my third question comes from Deck over on the Living Free in Tennessee MeWe group. And they ask, how does one start looking for bank-owned property maintenance? What's the ballpark pay? And if a property needs attention, do you have an opportunity to get paid to do that as well? Uh, what means or reference do you use to check on bank properties? Well, this is a good one. I kind of happened on this work early on in my business. A local realtor gave a maintenance company my name. But typically, these type of companies have a lot of turnover. So if you just drive by one of those uh, foreclosed properties, see the piece of paper in the window, give them a cold call, it, there's a really good chance it's going to produce you some work. Uh, as well, credit unions and smaller uh, branches tend to do all this work themselves. So contacting them may find you some work as well. Um, as far as how the pay goes, they pay for a single inspection. So just doing one drive-by or an inspection to a property doesn't pay real good. You need to be in this sort of thing for the long haul. Once you get a portfolio of multiple properties, it starts to pay better. They'll also pay you to go in and clean up, uh, ransack properties when people move out and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, that pays quite well. They'll also pay you to fix frozen toilets and that sort of thing. But everything has to go through a process. Everything has to be approved. Um, as far as the uh, regular inspections go, I typically have to mow the lawns biweekly or take care of the snow. I take a walk through the house itself, take a few photos of things like the water main, the furnace, the thermostat, and make sure the basement is dry. And that's really all there is to it. If you want to know more information about that sort of thing, feel free to email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com. Well, guys, I hope that was enough information. I managed to knock out three in that short time. Um, this, that's all for me for this week. But if you want to know more about getting into the handyman business and how to make enough money to not only survive but to thrive, check out my Growing Your Handyman Business video series over at YouTube. Uh, the shortcut for that channel is allseasonsmain.com. And once again, guys, send in your questions to Jack, anything you have that you'd like to uh, to know about handyman, lawn maintenance, and the works. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Well, all righty, then. We are headed into winter. In fact, we are, we are way closer to winter. Uh, in a lot of the country than I think anybody in the South is willing to admit. We're, we're like, it's finally not summer here. Like, we're not saying it's fall. It certainly ain't winter here. We're just saying it's not summer and we're not dying anymore. Some of y'all are already seeing snow fly. But, uh, as you get closer and closer to your winter, you have to start thinking about your bees if you keep bees. And I always enjoy, I don't keep bees. Uh, I did for a while and I decided it wasn't for me. Uh, but I always enjoy hearing about bees and learning about uh, what beekeepers do. I think it gives us a greater appreciation for one of the most important jobs in America. You get rid of the bee, we're all dead. I mean, seriously, we need the bees. And uh, Michael Jordan is a great beekeeper. And if you're getting your bees ready for the coming winter, here's phase two and what you should be doing. Hey, everybody out there at the Survival Podcast Network. 
This is Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, we take your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. Uh, we're going into phase three of the winter. Right, phase one was a harvest of honey, pulling a mite count and pulling down the boxes to downsize. Phase two is basically queen rearing, making splits, and getting deep into your mite treatment for the end of the year. And now we're into phase three. Now, phase three has to do with the winterization of your bees. Personally, I like to make a good bee fondant because we have taken all their honey. And that's something I want you to think about. Then in our program that we teach that we harvest all the honey because we're treating the bees as agriculture. Whatever they can feed on that's left in the honey is good, but whatever we can feed them will make them go through the winter. Just like cattle, yeah, you can put them out in the plains and they'll eat all, but when you get to the winter and there's nothing to eat, if you didn't cut hay on a good day, you're not going to have hay on a bad day. And that's something I want you to think about when it comes to beekeeping. Uh, that... Um, You should feed them. You're using an agriculture business. And I know everybody likes to say, well, I'm a natural organic beekeeper and I do everything I can organically. So let's get to some phases and phase three of winterization that we need to start doing. So we've done our splits. And right now the queens that we've inserted and stuff should be hatching or the queens that we've already had inseminated and stuff should actually be in their laying. So this will give you an opportunity to go through when you're going through the hive for the final time after your last treatment is to see how everything looks. Make sure that if the hive is not completely full of bees, that you're pulling out frames. And that's one reason why we teach the M3 method is that I can turn a medium nine frame hive box into a two frame nook. Uh, that's the kind of theory in which you think about a winterization is that we're going to take our bees and we're going to compact them down in the littlest space that we can and we're going to feed them in a space that they can keep really warm so they're able to eat feed and then putting a water bottle out so on warm days when it frosts the bees have water so i want you to kind of get that concept in your mind i, I, I tell everybody that it's it's like uh um, uh, man, you're going to get in there and, and, and the bees and stuff are, are full. But if it's not like a shaken can of beer when you open up that beehive, you need to compact those bees. The more compact the bees are, the more they work because they have a lot of room and they can do a lot of things. When you spread them all out, they're sporadic and they can't work as much. That's why bee space and controllability of growth is big in apiary management. So as we go through, we just finished up our mite treatments that we started at the beginning of October, right? And we're getting here in the middle of October. So every seven days we did three treatments or we did three treatments every seven days of OA. The first treatment we did and then seven to nine days later, we did it again after we did a brood break. So we did a big brood break of everybody, went through and split the hives and then we did another treatment. Because that's what's going to kill the mites is 
the three treatments with a brood break. Because if there's nothing for the bees to feed on, as there's nothing being laid, you're going to get a break. And it's going to help you for your winterization with the poisoning. So we've done all of this, and now we're getting ready to winterize. The best thing to do is to make a good bee fondant. There's a lot of videos out there, but I would make a bee fondant to feed those bees, and I'd compact the bees down. Now, if you're doing the M3 system, we've taught you that if you have three medium boxes, you should try to get down to two. If you're to two boxes, see if you can split it to one and a half by using the division boards and stuff that we teach and talk about. But the object is to compact the bees as much as you can and then feed them a, a fondant. Now, we're going to feed them a liquid feed until the feed freezes, and that's when the fondant comes in. But just like when the bees are out in nature, they won't eat the feed if there's a lot of good nutritional food out. Just like yourself, if a cheeseburger's sitting on the table and you're getting lobster bisque, you're going to probably go for the lobster bisque more than you are the cheeseburger. And that's what the bees most likely do, is that when there's good floral and good nectar flow, why would I eat something that's superficial when I can have the real stuff? So I want you to make a good bee fondant. There's a lot of recipes out there. And I'd always make sure that my bee fondant has some granules in it, such as bee pollen or some uh, uh like wheat or rye grain crush and put it in there. There's a lot of recipes that talk about this, and this is a protein additive for you to add for those bees so they can get not only some sugar content, but some protein. And there's a lot of recipes out there. I mean, I could go into a, a mix of adding lemongrass oil and stuff to, to, to make the bees really attracted to your fondant. But make a good fondant. Downside your bees and put the fondant in. We personally use a quilting box that we put on top that has a feeder tube to, that's three inches and that allows a muffin tin fondant to drop right down into the feeder to feed the bees. If you're not using a feeder tube like we've shown, make sure that your quilting box that you put on has a good inch of space between the top of the frames and your quilting box. That's where you should insert your fondant is between the quilting box and the frames on the top. That way, as the air flows up, the moisture and stuff is collected in the quilting box. And that way, if on hot days and stuff, the quilting box is more likely to suck air up and not drop the moisture down. That's what the quilting box is for. So this will allow the bees to come to the top where the fondant is and where most of the heat is correlating amongst the quilting box. The next step we're going to do is we're going to wrap the hive. Now, because we're only using medium boxes, the wraps come in three stages. One medium hive box with a quilting box, two medium hive box with a quilting box, or three. But most of the time, it's just the two quilt medium boxes and a quilting box. We make several uh, winter coverings. And basically what it is, it's black roofing felt with cardboard corrugation in it so we get corrugated cardboard we wrap two of those in roofing felt tape it all up and make panels kind of like you would for the side of a house the corrugation has air pockets and because it's black the sun will heat up those air pockets and almost make solar insulation 
or what we found in nature is almost like bark on a tree. So in nature, the tree is on the bark all the time. You can leave these winterizations on in our area. But when you're like in Texas and California and Florida and stuff like that, you, to, you won't be winterizing like how I'm talking about. You've only probably got about 30 days of wetness and cold and you guys are back at it. So feeding is a must for you guys. Make sure you have water and feeding stations out away from the hives. And I like 15 to 20 feet. And I like to use hummingbird feeders. I put them out there with water and sugar feed. And on nice days, the bees go there. That way, they're not robbing each other. But they're still getting water and feed. So the whole purpose of the winterization part, the third course, is wrapping and feeding. We're going to downsize the bees into a compact area. We're going to put a feed in there that they can eat all the time without having to going outside when it's cold. And we're going to keep that box warm by thermal insulation by making covers. Now you can go really in depth and we've, we've gone into Alaska and we've done some stuff where we do the easy bake oven method of insulization and we put a little box on the bottom that has a light in it. The light turns on when the temperatures are below 20, which warms the box, kind of like an easy-bake oven. But if you're like in Mexico, Argentina, and stuff like that, you're probably still looking to just maybe slide in the screen bottom board cover and not let the little cold breeze get into your bees. So remember, it goes with the history part. Look at what your temperatures are. Look what other beekeepers are doing. If they're not wrapping them and stuff, see why. If they are wrapping them, wrap them deep, bunch them together and keep them warm. Right? But this is phase three and the suggestion I'm going to give is compact, feed and wrap. Put your quilting boxes on and get ready to weigh them in November to see what your losses will be in December. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Taking your questions on bees, apiary management and mead making. Catch us on YouTube. Instagram, Facebook, and check out our new site called Splitting Hairs, LLC. We've just decided to use our apiaries now for paintball games to increase our profits at our apiaries. If we're not keeping bees, we're shooting paintballs and making some cash. Hey, as always, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small industry so you can get a great product and help your fellow men make an income. And always help your fellow man, because one day you're going to need help too. Next up, let's talk with Derek Bonpietro of AffordableDCGenerators.com, who knows a little bit about generators, you might think, uh, about choosing a generator for the home. We're considering here uh, a generator that needs to not run that much, but one item that needs to run is unique in that it's 220 in high draw. And we got a wife that doesn't want it to be too loud, and there's a lot going on with that. And it's a little more complicated than you might think. And with that, Derek will tell you how to figure out what you need when you're looking for a generator under these circumstances. And that should help you figure out what you need, even if your circumstances aren't the same. Because how we think about this is more important than the individual answer, as is so often the case. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question up on generators. My favorite. Let's get into it. Bill writes, first, thank you for the effort you put into the answer, answering questions on TSP. Bill, appreciate the kind words. You guys keep sending me questions. I've got answers for you. He writes, looking to get a generator and have some questions about size and connecting to the house. 
primary requirement is to power the well pump, fridge, freezer, a couple of fans, and a couple of lights. My wife likes the Honda generators due to the low decibel numbers. Since my well pump is 220, it looks like the limits that limits me to the EU 7000 IS. Was thinking of using one of the Generalink switches to connect to the house. Is it really as simple as securing all breakers, connecting the generator to the Generalink, firing up the generator, and flipping the desired breakers back on? It is going to run my 220 well pump okay. Looks like that setup will run about $5,500. Looking at the Generac site, the base price on a 16KW standby generator is $3,900, plus the install switch and propane tank. Have no idea what the switch and install charges are for the Generac, but seems like it may come in close to the same price as the Honda. Decibel ratings are 58 on the Honda and 69 on the Generac. House is blocked with all voids filled with concrete. How significant is the 58 to 69 decibel range? Closest window is 20 feet away, and then a sliding door 25 feet away around the corner. Other than portability and decibel ratings, are there any advantages of the Honda? All right, Bill. Let's rewind and go back to the basics, and then we'll get into the home standby stuff. So, Bill is looking to power uh, a couple of items in the in the house, which is not going to be requiring a huge generator, but one of them is a, a double breaker. It's a 220 volt or 240 volt, so it requires um, both lines, which is basically going to eliminate a lot of the smaller stuff. So it's a 240 volt circuit. It's going to require probably a 5,000 plus watt portable unit that is capable of powering those devices that aren't just 120 volt. And I don't think, unless you've got a super deep well, um, you're going to need a huge generator to power all of that stuff. But as you said, it's going to eliminate a lot of those and especially the inverter generators. So for the listeners that don't understand, the Honda 7000 is an inverter generator. It's kind of an open frame portable unit, just like all the other typical stuff you would see at Home Depot, except it's an inverter style. So what that means is when you start it up, it's not going to run at that full 3600 RPMs the whole time, burning tons of fuel and making tons of noise. It's an inverter generator. It's going to idle down and it's going to speed up as the load increases to match, and it's going to idle back down when those loads go away. Savings on fuel, and obviously the biggest one, a lot less noise. The Hondas are nice pieces of equipment, but you pay a pretty penny for that. And he says, you know, you're looking at probably $5,500. Now, I don't know a lot of this price is off the top of my head, but that uh, 7000 Honda inverter generator is super expensive. Now, he's talking about the Generalink. And again, for you guys that don't know, the Generalink is basically this piece of equipment that installs in the meter socket on the side of your house. You definitely need to have a licensed electrician do this, and I had one on my old house up when I was living in Maine. What the electrician does is basically pulls out the meter from the socket. This does require a service disconnect by law, so they're going to have to call the power company and shut the power down. You're going to install this general link, which is basically like a meter without the face, into the meter socket, and then the meter goes on top of that. It's kind of a sandwich, and it's got a plug on the bottom of it. It's a proprietary plug that's general link, but they sell the cords, and that's going to go out to the generator. So when the power goes out, you wheel your portable generator over near the meter socket. You take the cord, you plug it into the general link, and when you fire the generator up, it's going to automatically transfer the entire house over to the portable generator. It's super convenient. It's automatic. A couple things I don't like, it's manual load management. So if you're powering circuits on the house and you do not disconnect the breaker, such as a hot water heater, which could be 5,000 plus watts of power, you're going to trip or shut the generator down, plain and simple. So it requires a lot of manual intervention of flipping breakers off for large devices you don't want to power. 
And the other downside is it does not automatically transfer you back to the utility and shut the generator down automatically. All of that's basically manual operation. So it has its pros, but it also has its cons. You could do an automatic transfer switch, which will go back and forth automatically. <clears throat> and then if the generator is in idle in eco mode or has an idle down switch, so when there's no load, the unit goes basically to an idle. When the utility comes back, it'll transfer you automatically and the generator goes to an idle. So it's not just sitting there screaming away for no reason. But again, still lots of manual stuff. So this is a, a middle option to between a home standby and having nothing. But, you know, it still requires a lot of manual operation. And if you've got a kid or a wife or somebody that's not as knowledgeable trying to set this up, lots of directions and people don't feel very confident doing that. If it's yourself, obviously it's no problem, but my, my biggest issue is the person that was at home while I was away was unable to set this up and do this automatically. So if you can accept all of those cons, it's a good setup. The other downside to having a portable unit is that if it needs any kind of service or repairs, guess where it's got to go? Back to the Honda dealer, which is a big problem. That means that you've got to have a pickup truck or a big SUV that you don't, you don't mind putting a generator in the back of and it's a two-person job unless you're the Hulk. You gotta load it, drive it over, unload it, have them fix it, and then reverse the operation and have a second hand to put it back at the property out of the vehicle. So if you don't have that capability, which is pretty much every portable customer I run into, I end up having to go pick it up or work on it on site, it's big money. So if you're a portable generator, just keep that in mind. Yeah, you save on the generator because it's smaller and cheaper, but it's still very expensive to service unless you can transport it yourself. Okay, let's get into the Generac, or what would be a whole house home standby unit. So he's looking at a 16KW unit, and that's kind of in the middle of the pack. Most of these are going to start around 8 or 9 kilowatts and go all the way up to 22, and Generac actually just released a 24KW air-cooled unit. So in the spectrum, it's right in the middle, and 16K can realistically power an entire house as long as you don't have any kind of large loads like uh, central air conditioning. So you can either do a 16-circuit backup panel, which is basically just a transfer switch with a bunch of breakers in it, and you're going to move all of the loads onto that backup panel that you want powered off the generator. You may be able to do a whole-house backup. So that transfer switch powers the entire panel, and you may have to put some kind of load management, or what they call like an SMM, on some devices that maybe will overload the generator, like central air. So basically you're going to power everything minus one or two loads. And obviously that difference would be going from like a 16 to a 22. You could then power those loads. So that's an increased cost. So Bill says that that option is $3,900 plus install switch propane tank. That's basically everything outside of the actual generator and transfer switch that you're buying. So that's two guys pull up to the driveway, drop the generator on a concrete pad. They should be recording it with a gen pad. That's a battery. That's to connect the transfer switch in the house run the electrical, run the gas, propane company to drop some tanks at the house. It's all inclusive. Typically, as a general rule of thumb, the total price for the installation is usually double the price of the actual generator. So if it's $3,900, your install would be $7,800 if my common core math works for me. And that's a guideline. I don't do installation or sales, but that's a ballpark number and some might be a little higher or lower. But make sure you're not going to get gypped out of a concrete pad, brand new battery and all that stuff. It's an all-inclusive package. Now, the Generac is not going to be as quiet as the Honda because it's not an inverter generator. It's going to run at the full 3,600 RPMs, but it's an enclosure. It's got a muffler that's about the size of a car muffler. So it's pretty quiet, but it still sounds like somebody's outside cutting the grass. The Honda's going to beat it 
on the noise by a little bit. The Generac unit is going to be built a lot more rugged than the Honda. It's made to be outside all the time. And the biggest one is going to work 100% of the time by itself. So, family members that cannot operate the generator, you're not home, you're traveling, whatever it may be, that unit's going to start and run all by itself. The other advantage is that it's on site. The dealer is going to come out and do the annual maintenance on it. So they're going to show up and do the service, the oil change, the battery check, everything, all on site. And it's going to be through a Generac dealer typically. And they know what they're doing. Where when you buy a portable generator, hopefully the place you buy it from services it. And if you bought it from Home Depot, you're kind of on your own to find a dealer. And then you get into the game of, well, we didn't sell it to you, so we're not going to work on it. And you, you're very much on your own. Where when you buy something like a Generac and have it installed, You've got dealer support. You've got a whole network of companies that can help you out with this. So I'm going to throw a curveball in here. If you're looking to do a portable unit, I would just buy a regular one. Unless you're running generators all the time, or this is some off-grid situation where you got a lot of runtime and you don't want to deal with the noise, man, they only run for a little bit, you know? Put up with the noise because you can get a lot cheaper and simpler portable generator than that Honda 7000. And I love my Honda 2000. I think they make a great product. It's a lot of money, and it's big, it's heavy. I would just get a regular portable unit for 500 bucks and then maybe get the transfer switch installed if you were going to go with the portable route. If you're going to go home standby, I would absolutely go with a Generac. You can get a 16 or maybe even run one of their smaller single cylinder models. Have a professional come in, figure out the load and size it accordingly. As long as you can stomach the initial investment plus the annual maintenance, that's the route to go. It's a lot more money, but you're going to get a lot better experience when the power goes out. There's a big price gap. Portable unit, couple thousand dollars. Home standby unit, you're going to be in the six to ten thousand dollar range. If you can swing the money, go with the home standby. Every person I've run into with a portable unit absolutely hates it. So, Bill, I hope that answers your question. Check out affordabledcgenerators.com if you're interested in a portable, inexpensive DC power supply solution. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. All right, with that, I'm going I'm to try to expedite my segment today. I want to talk to you a little bit about social media. Uh, I started out this show talking about people that might be new to it. When you hear a show called the Survival Podcast, you might think that it's kind of a right-wing, uh, foil-hat, conspiracy-driven thing, or at least, you know, uh, leans right heavily. Uh, I myself am actually, here's a big scary word, if you've never heard someone say it before, who wasn't out throwing fiery bottles at people or something, I'm an anarchist. I actually don't want the state involved in our lives at all. I'm also a pragmatist. And uh, so I just want to go on with this, explaining that no matter what I talk about in this segment, I'm not making a case for any political candidates here. I'm making a case for something called truth, truth and honesty, and freedom of speech and expression. And when I look at social media, I don't see a lot of that at all anymore. And the two biggest defenders are the two most powerful uh, entities in this world, and that's Twitter and Facebook. And there could not be a better example than the story that came out recently about this laptop from Hunter Biden that's got pictures of him passed out with crack pipes in his mouth and has a, a litany of emails between himself and executives from Burisma and other people within Ukraine that show the entire narrative that's been put out by the Trump campaign that basically Hunter Biden was trading influence with Washington for favorable treatment and money in Ukraine because he had no experience and had nothing to offer 
these companies that gave him millions of dollars other than the fact that he was the son of the Vice President of the United States all seem to be true. Now again, I don't care who you vote for. This is not a political statement. This is a statement that that appears to be factual. This data was published by a major media outlet, the New York Post. This is not some guy, random guy we don't know's blog on Medium. It is well sourced, and it's put out, and the day that it's put out, it's taken down, banned, and pre prevented from being shared on Facebook and Twitter. Now, I don't care if you want if you were to if you were to flip this and it was Donald Trump Jr. passed out with a crack pipe in his mouth, and I know it wouldn't have happened. I'm going to get to that, so chill the hell out, some of y'all, right? If that had been Donald Trump Jr. passed out with a crack pipe, and everything was the same, and it was, it was suppressed by Facebook and Twitter, I would have the same opinion over it, and that it is that it is wrong. It is wrong. The libertarian, the anarcho-libertarian in me, agrees with the concept that these are private companies and they can do whatever they want. I actually don't want the government to do jack, diddly, square root of F all about what these platforms are doing. I don't care what the government does with these platforms. I don't want the government, I'm going to be very clear one more time, just so you can understand me because it's hard for people anymore. I don't want the government to do jack, diddly shit about this problem. That does not mean it's not a problem. I want all of you people that are still using these platforms to wake the F up and stop it. I want you to stop it. And the reason I want you to stop it is the words that we got today from Von Goethe. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. And I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things that can enslave you is addiction. And we don't just get addicted to crack and meth and alcohol or pornography, or whatever. The use of the, of the social media by Twitter and Facebook specifically, others as well, but specifically Facebook and Twitter, is addictive, and it is designed, engineered, to be addictive. The reason when you go to another platform and you start using it, you feel like something's missing, when there really ain't nothing missing, is that they're not running an algorithm that's specifically designed to trigger your behavior. And it's like you were smoking a drug, and then you went and smoked an inert substance. You're still getting smoke in your lungs. You're just not getting the drug response. I am not against the use of certain substances, including what we would call the sacred herb. Right? So I'm not putting down everything like that. But I am going to tell you right now that like crack is bad. Meth is bad. Those are two examples of drugs that you shouldn't be using ever. Not any amount of it is okay. And they're, they're both, heroin would be another one. They're incredibly addictive. Incredibly addictive. Crack ruins your brain. And what Hunter Biden has done is proof of that. You take three laptops with all kinds of shit like this on it to a computer restore, uh, repair store, leave them there, and forget about them. This is why we don't smoke crack, because it leads to behavior like this. While your father is running for president of the United States, you do this. This is what crack does. Well, we don't use crack. Facebook and Twitter are crack. Facebook and Twitter are crack. Because I get two objections to it. Well, I don't on the information I'm looking for bullshit. You absolutely do get the same information on these other platforms. Most of the information on these other platforms right now come from people who are on both platforms to take that information and move it over. 
So as far as this, in fact, you get more information because the stories that Facebook and Twitter take down are not taken down on alternative platforms. So if you want, you want social media that actually just gives you the things you say you want to see, they're there. The other one is, well, my kids aren't, aren't there, my grandkids, whatever. Okay, so tell, tell your kids to let, you, let them know, let you know whenever that they put pictures or something up like that. Right? And then just look at that. Or have them actually just send it to you. Or tell them, come on over to me, we, parlor, or whatever, and be there. Near right-wing echo chambers. Then why don't you get your ass over there and start putting some content on there that's not echo chamber right-wing crap. You see what I'm saying? Because the problem that I have, and I, I think this is something that people are just overlooking here, is corporations are made up of people, and people do not change. They become more of what they are. What I have seen Big Tech do this year with blatant, effing lies about COVID with basically carrying water for the Democratic side of the election and everything else had led me to a point where I said, I cannot be part of this anymore. And that's why I went off and did other things. And I'm not telling you to do the same so you'll come over where I am. I'm telling you to do the same because you are hopelessly enslaved if you think you are free. And, and, and if you're, you're thinking, but I want to keep using Facebook because blah, 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 it's not really the same, blah, blah, blah. You sound like a drug addict. Think of any intervention. Look, man, you, you're, you're drinking too much. It's destroying your life. I don't have a problem, man. I don't have a Yeah, you do. But I, I'm in control. No, you're not. So I would stop. Here's my challenge for you. If you don't want to use a different social media platform, don't. Go two weeks without using Facebook or Twitter. Just two weeks. Just don't use it. If it's on your phone, delete the app. When you reinstall the app, it will still be there. All your shit will come back. Delete the app off your phone so you're not hitting it. Because I'm telling you what you're doing. You're hitting it like a crack pipe. I'm going to tell you right now what a lot of you do. You're sitting having a conversation with somebody. They get up to take a pee. You're alone for freaking two seconds. You're on your phone. Look at Facebook. No, that jerk, look what he said. They did that because they wanted you to see that. Yes, I just threw my phone. It's got an impact case on it. It's okay. They wanted you to see that because they wanted to get a visceral reaction from you. Just don't look at it for two weeks. That's all I'm going to say. Then go look at it. And you'll see how stupid it is. And then I'm going to tell you this too. Let's say you can't go two weeks. You're an addict. You're an addict. You've got a problem. You can't go two weeks without looking at Facebook. Well, my kids, you just tell your kids or your nephews or whatever, hey, I'm not going to be on Facebook for the next two weeks. If there's something you need me to see, email me or text me. That's all you got to do. You have platforms that are actively censoring everything they don't like and backing and protecting everything they do like even when it's fake that are manipulating you into visceral responses and triggering emotional responses that cause endorphin releases, that are selling your data to every corporation that wants to buy it and reporting everything that you do to the government, and you are choosing to remain part of this. What the F is wrong with you? And I know what you're going to say, Jack, you did it for 10 years. You know why I did it? I wanted to leave years ago. I did it because I was following a principle of business. My people are there and wish to communicate with me there, so I will go there and communicate with them. That's what made leaving hard for me. 
And what ended up happening is I have a business principle and a moral principle. And they came into conflict. And when they came into sufficient conflict, I decided no more. Business principle loses to a moral principle. Moral principle is I cannot be part of an organization doing this. Because like I said, the corporations, much like people, evolve. They don't change. The only way humans change is with significant personal work. A person must determine this course in my life is bad or negative in some way and I don't want it. And then they can't just decide to change. Once you have a pattern like that in your life, you must do significant work to alter your behavior. And most people don't. And that means if you know someone who's 40 years old that in general is a miserable person, self-centered, miserable prick, that person will be absolutely intolerable by the time they're 60 years old. And if they make it to 80, you won't want to be in the same county, let alone the same room as them. Because they're going to become more of what they are. Since corporations are made up of people, they also become more of what they are. So you look at what these entities have done in the past two years. How much they've radically changed. The things they're doing today, if somebody would have told you two years ago that they would be doing them today, you would have said, no, they won't. No, they won't. And if you think for one minute that they would have taken the story down under the exact same circumstances if it was Donald Trump Jr., then you are not smart enough to listen to this show you should have tuned out long ago. Because they, they would have not taken it down. They would have actually probably featured it. So, again, two years ago, if somebody would have said, these are things that Facebook and Twitter will be doing, by the end of 2020, you would have said, no, they won't. No, they won't. No, that that they can't do that. And now you would, I would have, and if I would have followed that question that up with and said, "Hey, if they do it, will you keep using their platforms?" You would have said, "No, absolutely not." But now you'll justify it because none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. So let me ask you a question: What do they have to do before you say, "I'm not doing this anymore"? And don't think it's not important. Don't think this is not important for liberty and freedom. When you have platforms that the vast majority of Americans use to communicate, and those platforms are built on the concept of general free speech, understand that. No, they never said you can say whatever you want all the time, every time, every way. But they were built on the exchange of ideas and information. They were certainly built on the concept that we would not prohibit the sharing of an article from a major publication for discussion. I don't think anybody ever had a problem with, let's say, them saying, oh, you can't, you can't put out blatant actual hate speech. Right? I don't think anybody... Or you can't put out things that are completely false, pretending to be real, if they are going to harm people. Right? You, like, I don't think anybody had a problem with that because they understood what we were looking at. And I think people in general knew Silicon Valley's left wing. Duh! It's going to move that way a little bit. Okay, fine. But censoring a doctor's medical opinion when you're a freaking 19-year-old moron who wouldn't know the difference between aspirin and Motrin and that's supposed to be okay? No, it's not okay. It's not okay. Wake up, America. It's not okay. And the Senate isn't going to fix it for you, and they shouldn't. Donald Trump isn't going to fix it for you, and he shouldn't. Government is not going to fix it for you because it is a power mechanism, 
And governments, even when the power mechanism is counter to the power they want, love power mechanism. The government loves this shit. They'll talk about it. They'll do some dog and pony bullshit. They'll drag the CEO of Twitter in there and they'll yell at him. And they'll do jack diddly square root of F all about it. They won't do shit. They're not going to do shit and they shouldn't do a damn thing. They shouldn't even do the dog and pony show because you should grow up and act like a fully grown ass man or woman and realize these pricks hate you except for the value you represent is a dollar sign they can sell. That's, that's who these people are. And you are putting money in their pocket. Every time you open that app or go on that computer and scroll through and look at and read their shit, you are putting money directly into the pocket of Mark Fuckerberg. You're putting money in Mark Fuckerberg's pocket, in that shitbag that runs Twitter, whatever his name is. You're contributing to the wealth of their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. These people, by the time we're that far down the road, will have more money than the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers ever dreamed about if things keep going the way they are. And you're doing it willingly. You are contributing to the wealth of Mark frickin' Fuckerberg. Got it? That's what you're doing. Every day you open that app and you go on there and you look at kittens or whatever. You're making Mark Zuckerberg wealthier. A man who willingly sells you like a product, because that's what you are, to any corporation and then denies you the right to discuss the things that you find important whenever they go counter to his wishes. And all of the people on that board and all the people in that organization that are doing this, including the people whose only job is to make algorithms better, to make you perform and do the things that they want you to do. And they get a little bit better at it every day and a little bit better every day and a little bit better every day. Just like the crack addict gets a little bit more addicted every day and needs the crack a little bit more every day. So, shut it the F off for two weeks. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. When I left Facebook, I was like, you know, I'm only doing it for business. And that's how, that's how I justified staying. I'm not sure how much of that was true and how much of it wasn't. But to me, a big part of it was, hey, I run a business. Don't think it hasn't hurt me to leave economically. Most of you leaving won't hurt you at all. But when I occasionally check back in now, I'm like, what the hell? This is, there's nothing here that matters. This is all bullshit. This is all total bullshit. And that's what happens when you get off dope. You don't know how screwed up you are until you feel good. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. Nothing makes you stay in these platforms. Nothing makes you keep throwing money into the pockets of people who hate you, who sell you, who treat you like a piece of trash, whose only value is that you can get money for putting dirt on top of them in a landfill. That's how low you are. Especially if you're not one of the, the, the woke, the woke children. If you're not one of the woke, you're, you're garbage to these people and you're making them rich. I can't say anymore. It's up to you now. You do what you want to do. With that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's tspaz.com. You go there before you shop online. You help us out no matter what you buy. And, uh, tell you what. 
This week has been uh, Prime Days or something like that, and I think it's actually over, but they still have like these specials going. It's been really, uh, really good for a lot of y'all that have some items on your wish list, like big items. Like we had the DeWalt drill set early in the week. That's just, it was an incredible deal. And then yesterday we had the Excalibur uh, deal. And by the way, that's still going on. If you want to look that up, it's at the survivalpodcast.com. Start strolling down and, uh, the, uh, the 3926 was a $300 dehydrator selling for $189.99. This morning anyway, it was still on that special deal. And another one popped up this morning. I am a huge fan of sous vide cooking. I won't get into it today. It's just awesome though. If you go to the website and just Google sous vide, which is S-O-U-S space V-I-D-E. The survival podcast.com and search that. You can find all kinds of content we put out on it. So many things a sous vide cooker does beyond just making a steak really the most delicious steak you can ever make. There is a, uh, the Anova, the, the Bluetooth Wi Fi version, the, the best one that they make is on sale today for 60 bucks off for 138 bucks. So normally $198 now knocked down to $138. It's probably going to be today only. So I'm running that one today at tspaz.com. But remember, you can help support us no matter what you buy. As long as you go to tspaz.com before you shop online. Again, it doesn't matter what you buy. Just go there first. Just start your search there and you help us out. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today with our song of the day. We're doing the top five country music songs from 1980 this week. Because I just, as I've been saying, I feel like 1980 was a year... The country music changed, but you didn't see it in 1981 unless you were really paying attention. You didn't see it in 82 or 83. By 1985, people like Kenny Rogers were still making number one, you know, top five hits. Certainly making the top ten. It wasn't until about 88-ish that this new these new new artists had really taken complete root in country music and would start to dominate everything about country music. That by the 1990s, we would be into what you would have to call the Garth Brooks era. And, and all the people that, that if you're you know about my age, you love to listen to, a lot of them were playing and, and doing really well for themselves in the mid-80s, but they still weren't hitting the overall top ten. They would be peppered in there. But 1980 was when The group that did it all, Alabama, with Tennessee River, hit number three for the year. But they were sandwiched, like I said. Let, let's look at what we've got leading up till today. We started on Monday, Coward of the County, Kenny Rogers. That's definitely the old guard of country music right there. I Believe in You was number four, Don Williams. Number three, Tennessee River from Alabama. Number two, yesterday, On the Road Again, Willie Nelson. Today, He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones. It doesn't get more old guard than Jones. And this song, this song was George Jones's version of My Way. Frank Sinatra. Much like Frank Sinatra, by the time he did this song, George Jones was pretty much done. He wasn't expecting a comeback. He had had problems and he had also had his heyday. It was pretty much over. He was even old guard for the old guard. They came up with this song for him to do, and he didn't want anything to do with it at all. He told his producer, and I'm quoting here, no one's going to want anything to do with this morbid son of a bitch of a song. 
Because this song's about a guy that loves a woman right up till the day that he dies. And somebody that knows him goes by to see him at his funeral. And so does the woman that he had loved for all those years. If we just take the dates out of this, literally this went on for more than 20 years. That this man stayed in love hoping this woman would come back and never did. And the man that singing the song, the narrator of the story, hadn't seen him smile in years until they put him in a casket. It is pretty morbid when you think about it. But it's also the kind of love that people really look for, that really hope that they find. They hope that it lasts this way, but they hope that it works from both sides. It was an incredible song and an incredible story, and it's one you, you almost wonder why there was never a movie about it, except it would have ended up being a chick flick because it has a terrible ending, and women seem to like that for some reason. Well, here we go. We're going to go back to this song, which, again, was just one of the most incredibly successful songs of all time. The guy that sung it didn't want to sing it, and it brought him back to megastar status which is exactly what my way did for Frank Sinatra, which means, once again, folks, make the most of your dash. You're not over till you're done, and you ain't done as long as you can fog a mirror. Think about that as you go through this weekend. Make stuff happen. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. She told him you'll forget in time As the years went Slowly by She still preyed upon his mind He kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Kept some letters by his bed Late in 1962 He had underlined in red Every single I love I went to see him just today Oh, but I didn't see no tears All dressed up to go away First time I'd seen him smile in years He stopped loving her It placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today You know, she came to see him one last time. Oh, and we all wondered if she would. And it kept running through my mind. 
this time he's over her for good. He stopped loving her today. It placed her evil upon his door. And soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today.